You have a fancy new mic setup. Yeah, for the first time in actually quite a while, I now have a proper setup. Months, so, months of this. Months. Yeah, lately, Sharice and I have been recording on Saturdays, or usually, yeah, for the most part, at home. Yeah. On a yeah. Saturday or whenever. And I've had to hold my mic the whole time. And it's annoying for two reasons. There's probably more, but the two big reasons are I I have handling noise. Like if I bump the cable, the XLR cable. And secondly, it's just articulating yourself sometimes. I think it's just like another action you have to go through. Yeah, because you got to think about holding the mic at like the correct distance and then you can't like put it down or anything. So much better to have a stand. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Tan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. All right. So based off of our very unscientific method of choosing who goes first, you go first, Sharice. It was a close one. You know. Right to the very end. You know, you could have rewritten your subject line. I think that's cheating. To not be Anyways, passive if you voice. Don't know, to not be passive no, voice. No, no. I copy and pasted. I copy and pasted their title. Okay. Yes. For those who don't know, we decide who goes first based off of the first letter of our subject lines. And we go in alphabetical Mm -hmm. order. My subject this week is TikTok hires law firm K&L Gates to advise on its U.S. content moderation policies. So per usual, just some background information first. So TikTok started out by being musically. It was acquired by Chinese firm ByteDance in 2017. Then musically was shut down mid-2018 and its user base was merged into TikTok. Just this month, TikTok was the number three most downloaded non-game app in the U.S. And it was also the most globally downloaded this month with 60 million worldwide installs. So there's been a lot of talk around TikTok and its content and moderation policies for a variety of reasons. I'm just going to get into some of them. There is this idea that people have put forward that TikTok is censoring the Hong Kong protests on the app, but not U.S. political content. And then there are some people that say it is unclear what it does with U.S. political content because it seems to ban political ads, but supports certain hashtags like Trump 2020 and MAGA. And even there are some people that say it's completely confusing what it stands on political content because it allows all political hashtags, but it seems like the views don't match up with what people mm-hmm. would like suppose for the views. And so the concern really is that like um, reporters and different people have asked TikTok to speak about, you know, these issues that they're seeing. And TikTok has not answered any of these questions, been very opaque and essentially stateside people and reporters and government is saying, We need greater transparency from you. So what TikTok has done is that it's in the process of assembling a committee of experts to help with content moderation policies and increase transparency. And the committee is not meant to just look into censorship, but also 
child safety, hate speech, misinformation, bullying, other issues. And, you know, it's interesting because we've actually talked about how Facebook and Instagram and like WhatsApp deal with those same issues. So it's kind of funny because on one hand, you would think that like by now there are examples of social media companies dealing with these issues in somewhat productive ways in the sense that like we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel with every social media app. But it just does basically look build like, like a system or a structure. Yeah, I was just like there's ex- there are examples. I'm not saying that Facebook and Instagram they're not perfect, but they have done yeah. a lot of work and a lot of testing to see what makes sense. You know, when it comes to hate speech and bullying, which we've talked about at length. So it's kind of like, well, maybe you should share that information, or maybe like, like a committee. Yeah, what is the harm right? in social media apps having like a shared discussion? about the ways to move forward i mean honestly i think social media platforms revel when their competitors have something bad happen to them it's just really sad um well that's what happens when they're they're run as businesses versus social goods right yes no you're totally right like i understand as businesses why this happens because they're very protective of the ideas they come up with but we've talked about this before where the ways that social media platforms now have power it can be genuinely dangerous so what um they're doing now is funny because there's really no new news they've just come out to say we are forming this committee but they haven't said who are all the people on the committee the committee has not made any decisions in reality the app has not changed in effect they've just said like oh we're gonna start getting people to like look into changing things And it's interesting as well on a larger scale because before, so this article is from TechCrunch, but about a week ago, Bezod in our Slack community shared a Stratechery article, which you and I both read, which was also about TikTok amongst other things. So this might be a little bit confusing for people. I'm not sure. So this Stratechery article, it was written in response to this entire kerfuffle about like the rockets and the NBA, but going to not get into that because it'll be kind of distracting. There's a second half of the Stratechery article that was about TikTok in particular as a Chinese company that acquired US company without a lot of oversight or review. And mm-hmm. essentially the author says that that was a mistake and that the US government needs to be generally more careful about reviewing acquisitions like this that happen. Because even though in one sense, as businesses, I guess this is normal, like a normal kind of pattern of merger and acquisition. But in terms of global influence, it's, I guess, something that the US is should be more wary about. I don't know if I want to throw this in there, but I feel like it's almost as though we need to make some mention of it but it's just that i think ultimately one of the sensitivity elements around tiktok this this is honestly not something i'm i'm i look forward to discussing because it's very complicated sorry let me i guess it's more that i think you have to acknowledge it but whether i have a solution definitely not in this day and age especially as media companies and brands are such an important part of our social fabric. What role does TikTok play in, in the grand scheme of things? 
It's obviously incredibly influential amongst the youth. It's a Chinese-based company. What is the relationship you need to have to run a company on a global scale, but knowing that there is somebody else you need to appease that goes beyond sort of like your shareholders? Like, whatever that looks like. I think that's the most complicated part. Everything I've mentioned up until that last point could have a 15, 20, however long minute discussion around it. I know. So I think that that's what I think is the most complicated thing is that anytime you're going to do business with something, you know, out of China, then you have to be very conscientious of what you say, what you do. And obviously this is, you and I know very well based off all things going on in, in our backyard with Hong Kong protests, et cetera, that it plays a big role in how things shape not only our region, but things going around globally. And it's almost like, where do you start, right? I think that I was thinking about it because when you brought up, why don't they just create like a coalition or like um, some some sort of group? But I think that the rules of engagement here are very different. Yeah, I know. Um, I know, I know. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I feel like everything I said up to this point, pretty clear cut, you know? like a tech concern, a need for transparency in tech around content and moderation, you know, not just about censorship, but about other things like underage users, which TikTok already got into trouble for. Interestingly enough, they were fined $5.7 million for children's privacy law violations. So I feel like everything I said up to this point was about like good behavior in tech and needing tech companies to be better at regulating that and possibly, like I suggested, talking to each other about ways that yeah. they can do that. However, like you said, the difference is that TikTok is not owned by Mark Zuckerberg, which would make this a totally different conversation, right? But that TikTok is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. Yeah. So that just like totally, like you said, completely changes the rules of engagement. Because like what we can say without being too like, I don't know, getting too uh, controversial here, is that China has a different perspective. Yeah. Right. I feel like that is the safest thing I can possibly say. China has a different perspective on information and the dissemination of information. And the way China views the way information should be given, controlled, is different from the way the states sees it. And so this like very strange thing is happening where this is probably the first time like China has made an app that is so globally popular, like is in all of the US pop culture, that we don't have a previous playbook of what this winds up looking like. Yeah, there's been no other company that has had the same level of global relevance as TikTok. But I think the other thing to consider is that there seems to be a need to kind of identify how this should behave versus that. And this being a social media platform versus if TikTok repositioned itself, hey, we are we are an entertainment company that happens to like allow people to do this. Like, does that change the perception around it? Or what if it was a news platform? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, well, maybe you can elaborate on that. Like, what difference would it be as a news platform, for example? Well, because it if, be it, more if, okay if TikTok to have- was a Chinese-owned news platform, like the China Global Times, for example, then 
suddenly, globally, there would be this expectation that, well, of course, it's going to come with Chinese state perceptions and their policies. But because it's meant to be a social network, like you said, there is this idea of equal and individual speech with no no restrictions, mm-hmm. which even Twitter and Facebook have come up against, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Twitter has experimented with banning white supremacist accounts and people in the States have fought back against that. So mm-hmm. it's interesting now to see, well, I guess on a global level, but mostly stateside, concern itself with the way China moderates content instead of something mm-hmm. homegrown. You know what's really interesting is that this actually plays into something I had uh, watched. It was, I think, a Vice documentary on 8chan. Mm-hmm. And basically, the founder of 8chan asked, or somehow the discussion around censorship came up, and he actually made the argument that fully uncensored, anonymous internet activity is bad, and that if you were to really kind of wrangle things in, you would kind of need to go the route of China to make sure there's an identity associated with everyone that's putting stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And this is like someone who had actually been on the opposite side yeah. and had in many ways experienced what it's like to have absolutely no censorship, right? And chan for those that are unfamiliar, was a byproduct of 4chan. And most recently, it's been in the news because that's where a lot of mass shooters go to like, I guess, hang out. Well, I also wonder if it would be different if TikTok didn't hide its origin story about being this Chinese company, if they didn't hide the people who have say, okay, if they were just, this is obviously not going to happen, but I'm just going to say it anyway. If they were really open about the fact that like, yes, we have to abide by the Communist Party decisions on information. And that's why we censor mentions of Tiananmen Square and Tibetan independence and Falun Gong and the Hong Kong protests. And that's just the way it is. What then? Mm-hmm. What if What if they did that? I have no idea. I think that's so interesting. They could, right? In theory. They could just say to the world, like, but it'd be like lifting the curtain on the Wizard of Oz. Because I actually feel like if they did that, then like, what, is, what, what can you fight back on? Yeah. Because right now, a lot of the the unrest regarding TikTok is like, we just don't know what's going on here. You seem to have some kind of motivations, but they're not clear what the motivations are. Like if in the Shatekri article, they say, oh, if you search for a search term in English, you get these results. But if you search in Chinese, then you get these results. So it's kind of like, well, what's going on here? Have you ever used TikTok? Yeah, I've used TikTok. Okay. It not not really my cup of tea. It feels very much entertainment driven though like you wouldn't necessarily go there you would go there for very short snippets of like some information but the thing is that's interesting is that it's become this social media darling and it's like sort of what's next after instagram because i don't think Mm -hmm. snapchat was able to kind of come in and provide the next generation but tiktok looks to be that and having said that i've seen quite a few people actually be very open. People that you know, if censorship was on the table in relation to TikTok, they would not be going out there and saying that TikTok is amazing. Mm. And I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm in some ways I'm assuming, but I just think people that I see interacting, you know, it's kind of like the people that are very much at the forefront of sort of Western values, et cetera. Like 
if censorship and TikTok start to become more synonymous and more well-known, I'm curious if the entertainment and or the, the value of it will in many ways make them forget about the censorship side. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like in summary, I don't know if this is a cop-out, but I just feel like Ben Thompson wrote this so much better than anything I'm going to say. So I just want to quote from his words. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So at the end of Ben Thompson's article on Stratechery, which we can link to, he says, My instinct is towards free trade, my affinity for Asia generally and greater China specifically, my welfare enhanced by staying off China's radar. And yet for all that, the idea of being a global citizen is an alluring concept and largely my lived experience. I find in situations like this, I'm undoubtedly a child of the West. I do believe in the individual, in free speech, and in democracy, no matter how poorly practiced in the United States or elsewhere. And in situations like this weekend, when values meet money, I worry just how many companies are capable of choosing the former. And then at the very end, last paragraph, he writes, The biggest shift, though, is a mindset one. First, the internet is an amoral force that reduces friction, not an inevitable force for good. Second, sometimes different cultures simply have fundamentally different values. Third, if values are going to be preserved, they must be a leading factor in economic entanglement, not a trailing one. Yeah, I mean, I think he says it, I don't think it's on the, on the money, right? Because he says, you know, let's just acknowledge that China's values are different yeah. from the states and maybe different from what like you or I as individuals hold. But the real question is, like, what happens when the two butt heads? Like, there has been situations where it was kind of like, I guess we just let you do what you do. You know, there's no need for interference. But at this point, it's really because of this global use of the app. It's like, well, you clearly, China, are promoting your values. And how do we feel about Mm -hmm. that? Like, what do we do in light Mm -hmm. of it? Is there anything else you want to add? No, I think that's it. Well, I actually thought that was better than I thought this was going to go. As in, like, I was not sure I could explain this properly. I think these topics, and I see a very clear theme between your topic and my topic this week. I think they're just worth explaining and understanding. And understanding, maybe not so, because I don't think it's about understanding it in the context of these 60 minutes or whatever, Mm -hmm. but at least making people think about it. Yeah, I mean, your topic and mine yours which will go into both merit more reading which kind of sounds like we're assigning homework to people but that's how it goes yeah My topic this week is Venezuela will be cut off from Adobe products because of Trump sanctions. Less than two weeks ago, Adobe sent out emails to its Venezuelan customers about their move to block users in the country. The move was to comply with the Trump mandate known as Executive Order 13884. 
In an excerpt from the email, in order to accommodate the impact of this change, we are providing advance notice and a grace period lasting until October 28, 2019 for you to download any content you have stored in your Adobe account. After October 28, 2019, you will no longer have access to your account, adobe.com or Adobe Software and Services. This was originally in Spanish, I believe, and it was translated, just small, small note. Furthermore, they created a website to explain a little bit more about what was going on. And one of the things on the website said, the U.S. government issued Executive Order 13884, the practical effect of which is to prohibit almost all transactions and services between U.S. companies, entities, and individuals in Venezuela. To remain compliant with this order, Adobe is deactivating all accounts in Venezuela. So that just sort of wraps it all up. And another further blow was that this mandate did not allow Adobe to issue refunds either. So basically, if you're based in Venezuela or you're in Venezuela, you cannot even get your money back. So I think that you can still use... Well, actually, it'd be tough because if you have a Venezuelan credit card, then yeah, it's probably very easy to cut you off. But maybe you have a U.S. credit card or some other country's credit card and you use a VPN. Maybe it's still okay. I don't know. But the reason why I found this interesting was it's less about the executive order and nor is it a geopolitical lesson on what's going on in Venezuela, which I don't know a ton of. I just know that there's been a lot of political strife, hyperinflation, and various socioeconomic issues. Well, and I can say discount. something that I feel like was important, though. The U.S. has been enforcing increasingly rigid sanctions on Venezuela since 2015. And at this point, the U.S. has this total embargo on Venezuela, and the EU has also imposed sanctions. And all of it is with the hopes of ousting the current president, Nicolas Maduro. So I think that's like enough context for this moment. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. So, like I said, my interest in this topic is less around the exact things going on in Venezuela. It's more that Venezuela is the jump off point for two, two themes I want to talk about. Number one is the impact of geopolitics in the world of creativity, which yeah. in itself is a pretty heavy thing. Uh, there's no shortage of things going on in this world that I think have some, some major geopolitical implication. Uh, the one, obviously, in Hong Kong, we talked about it before. It's in our backyard. It's what happens to the luxury fashion market if suddenly tomorrow Hong Kong disappears. And that's actually pretty big because Hong Kong is the fourth largest luxury retail market in the world, which I didn't know it was that big. I mean, when I think about it, it makes sense, but it was never sort of like flashing in my face. Even though I see it so much, we all see LV stores on every corner. Yeah. I remember like these are these are loose numbers, but there might be three or four LVs in Shanghai, but there's nine in Hong Kong. Sure. Example. There's a lot. It's enough to say uh, that Hong Kong is a pretty big deal when it comes to luxury retail. Yeah. So right now, I don't really see a replacement for that demand that was originally coming through Hong Kong, which yeah. was because of tourism, et cetera. Yeah. Other ones could include the tariffs between China and the United States. And for example, obviously a lot of American-based brands are doing production in China, whether it's Apple, whether it's Nike. And what does that mean for the end consumer as those products flow back in the United States? And lastly, this made me think of something and still within the realm of fashion. 2008, 2009, there was a financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting was that during that time, in regards to menswear, you saw people move past the 
streetwear of the time, like very definitive graphic t-shirts, etc. And they actually transitioned more into this Americana legacy fashion brand type world. And the reason why that happened was because people were looking for quality. They wanted to know that for that $100 they were going to spend, they were going to get the best quality and it would last. Yeah. Well, I think it's a really interesting subject that you bring up that we should focus on, which is the, like you said, in one line, the impact of geopolitics in the world of creativity. And you gave a couple of examples, but essentially it is how do we look at the impact of geopolitical situations such as trade wars or embargoes on individual creatives? Is that your question? Was that what you're more interested in? Or would it be mm-hmm. like larger market trends? I think larger market trends. I think it's both. It can go both ways, right? Well, I, I mean, know I've one, been speaking one, to people. Both affect each other, right? Yeah. Like I've been talking to people in Hong Kong. It's just been very slow for them. People that might have had a lot of work coming in because of end of year holidays, et cetera. Yeah. Like that work sort of dried up. Yeah. And that's just sort of what happens. But on that other note, the bigger note that I'm always interested in is what are things that are out of our control and a byproduct of uh, geopolitical situations that change uh, the trajectory of culture, mm. right? So you could say that in a way like, the latest interest in sustainable fashion is because of where we are today in the world in terms of uh, environmental sustainability, climate crisis, et cetera. Like those yeah. are big macro trends that are happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But then these ones themselves are also part of the overall landscape. I'm making this up, but like, what does it mean if the fourth largest luxury market suddenly prevents you from onboarding new customers? Mm. Right. Do people suddenly find something else to spend their money on? And they realize, I don't want luxury anymore. Like, these are things that I find really interesting. And there's there's no way for you to really know because you have to model it out down the line. But those are things that that are worth thinking about in terms of the complexity of this world and how it trickles down. Because you could also argue that creative culture and consumer culture go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And most of the world, generally speaking, has a pretty strong consumer component to it for sustainability of business. Well, isn't there possibly a situation where these global issues that we cannot control lead to greater company creativity? Probably not in this case of Adobe, which I don't really see a way around it. Oh, wait, actually, I do. I do. This is what I'm going to say. So like in the case of Adobe, which if we look at it, shows the Adobe monopoly in oh, globally, right? Like if suddenly you or I could not use Adobe, we would suddenly be scrambling for other software. And that Mm -hmm. creates an opportunity for other software to fill that void. And that's like an example of other ways that the situations can result in greater creativity. Yeah, there's definitely solutions that can arise from all of this. I mean, they have to, right? Because like there's a, like you said, luxury retail... Is it possible that consumers will then consume less luxury, but there's also a possibility that they will just go somewhere else for luxury? So, yeah. like the consumption well, won't go actually like Singapore. Yeah. So exactly, the consumption won't go down, but instead it'll be redirected to Singapore, for example. And then potentially, how does that? You and I don't know, but like in theory, in talking about it, 
like how does that change Singapore's creative climate? Yeah. Because yeah. they ha- suddenly have this influx of like luxury retail. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about was, do you remember in Making It Up 100, we talked about whether we preferred SaaS or we preferred to just fully buy out? Yes, I do remember that. Software. And we both said subscription. We both said subscription, didn't we? We both did say. So in episode 100 of Making It Up, we did like a rapid fire and we asked whether we'd prefer to buy out software or to pay a subscription. And we both said subscription. But in light of this, how do you feel? Does this, does this make <laughs> I feel you like I'm rethink, being set like, up. <laughs> does it make you rethink what are the bad things that could happen? I mean, none of us could have predicted that Adobe and Venezuela would soon have to kind of sever, sever ties, right? I mean, I got to say, I was reading this article about Venezuela. And yes, I am sympathetic to... the their situation, which is not just extensive to the people affected by the Adobe embargo. But at the same time, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe I should pirate Adobe again, because then I'd have a backup in case anything happened to it. I mean, it's just really tough because there's no incentive for Adobe to help develop and add in the best technology and development into something that you're not supporting directly. Yeah. Like subscription itself fundamentally makes sense because you're continuing. It's kind of like you're subscribing for not just usage at that moment in time, but also for its future development. Right. Same thing with the newsroom. Yeah, because we just have the assumption that this will be ongoing forever. But we have no idea. Who knows? Someone could buy out Adobe and then be like, No, yoink. I don't think so. Just in theory. Um, but hey, you're also making me think of that Adobe could have done a really generous thing. In light of Venezuela. Oh, I was thinking something too. Where they could have offered to just give them a download of it. No, but I think they are actually blocking all Venezuelan interaction with Adobe. Like, you can't even go to the site. Like, they blocked the site too. Oh, damn. I was thinking, like, if you really wanted to do it, maybe you just, like, (laughs) you just put, like, a torrent up and you can just download a torrent. That would have been like the really cool thing. That would have been very cool, but also like shady, like on a greater um, like company illegal sense. Okay. I'm trying to think harder. Subscription versus one-off purchase. I mean, you can't necessarily always think about the worst case scenario as the guiding principle to how you believe in, in what the right choice is. Yeah. The thing is that I actually like for subscriptions that you get the updates. Yeah, I do feel pretty good when I know that my dollars are going towards the continual upgrading, right? If they stopped upgrading, then it would seem pointless. But not that I would, I don't even know what I could do to protest that if they did stop upgrading it. But I do have to say that the reason subscription is appealing for software services is because they continually make their products better. I have have nothing else to add. No, that's good. All right.
Moving on. Moving on. Yeah. What was your revelation this week? Oh, man. You, you, I feel like you know what yours is. Oh, I have a I, really good one for you. I have a really good one for you. But it, it's going to be but, not surprising but, to you. So I was listening to... Yeah? Wait, I was okay, just going to so go into it. I guess you're going to jump right into Sorry. it. I guess you're going to jump right <laughs> into it. This is one okay. of those instances where you ask someone a question, but you really just want them to ask you the question. Okay. Um, okay. What is it? You're going to find this interesting. So this has been tailor-made for you. I was listening to the podcast 99PI. And I didn't know what the episode was about. It was just the next episode, but it was about the back pass rule in football. Okay. Which I assume that you are familiar with. Very familiar with. Okay. So stop me if I am wrong in this explanation, but essentially. This is very relevant too, because it totally impacts goalkeepers and I happen to be a goalkeeper. Yes. I mean, that's why we're talking about it. Okay. So according to my understanding is that like, 20, 30 years ago, the way football worked is that um, anyone in the field could sort of save time or like use up time in the game by kicking the ball back to the... All right, you're way too nice. Let's just call it time wasting. Okay. Yeah. So they could do that by kicking the ball back to the goalkeeper and then the goalkeeper could use their hands to pick up the ball and hold it for a couple seconds before like tossing it back into the game. It was like a get out of jail card. Yeah. And so everyone did this because obviously if the rules allow for it, then people will do it. And so they changed, they made this very small change to the game. Well, on paper, it looks like a small change where essentially if you kick, you still can kick it back to the goalkeeper, but now they can't use their hands. And then according to this podcast, which I assume is true, is that this totally changed everything because now goalkeepers had to learn how to use their feet and essentially became like integrated more fully into the team. And the entire game became quicker and more nimble and people just had to like think more strategically rather than having just like get out free. Yeah. Anyway, I thought of you because it was related to goalkeepers and obviously you, you play as a goalkeeper like i guess my very quick sort of two cents is that yeah it fundamentally revolutionized how you play the sport and there's a lot of talk about tactically how the game has shaped up and everyone's like oh it's so like tactically involved today and it's true but if you look back on how tactics are applied today they're actually just pulled from the past and just made into this hybrid type approach Mm. but beyond that it's always interesting when the f- the foundation of a game changes, which forces a certain type of game style to emerge. Yeah. You see the same thing in the NBA, the more protection for shooters. Like, obviously, it's a very scorer-heavy type of league now. Even the NFL, a lot more protection. I think those are really interesting things on how the culture of a sport changes. But th- I think the prototype for that new style of goalkeeping is this german goalkeeper who still plays right now his name is manuel neuer mm-hmm. and basically he's what you call like a sweeper keeper like quite often you'll see him standing far beyond his 18 yard box so basically what that means is that when balls come over the top he's the first one there and he can basically cut off that distance and yeah. he's basically the prototype i think it's really cool because so for two reasons one is i don't play football so this is not actually directly applicable to me in terms of like a sport i play but it is that idea of you can change just this one seemingly small rule and then it affects everything. And so I haven't thought of a good example yet, but I was thinking that could apply in regular life as well. 
like, let's say you work at a company and they make this one seemingly small rule to, um, I don't know, like what time you have to show up to work or something like that. And it could affect the entire culture of the company. So I thought that was really interesting as a concept. And then the other thing that I thought was hilarious, I'll have to send you the clip, is in the podcast, they speak to a former goalkeeper who's now a coach for goalkeepers, specifically, I think, at like North Carolina U. And this person said that he can identify goalkeepers, even if they're not in uniform, because they just have something different about them from the rest of the team. I think that's fair. I mean, you're the lone player on in a team sport that actually doesn't integrate with the team. Yeah, that's way. what you said. And then I thought yeah. about you, and I was like, oh, okay, gotta get it now. That's that's, that's me. actually a very interesting way for you to start. I mean, it wasn't so much a revelation; it was something fun, and I, I guess a bit about thinking about small things that change, you know, widespread yeah. culture is interesting. Yeah. What okay. is my revelation? Back to you now, for real. So I've been reading this book by Carl Sagan. I knew it. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. When you started the other one, sorry to cut you off. So we can't put this in. When you started the other one, when you started the other one, I was like, where is the Sagan quote? I was like, this is not what I thought was coming. (laughs) Just fully anticipated what you would be saying. All right. All right. Tell me about, tell me about Carl Sagan, Eugene. Okay. So I've been reading this book by Carl Sagan and I have no problem admitting this, but like, I've never been that familiar with Carl Sagan. Just like, I think that he is someone that as you get to, if you dig a little deeper into his past, he's been one of the key figures in bringing science to the forefront and making it, I, I, I think communicating its importance. He does a lot of other things too, like beyond being an author. But I think for a lot of people, what he's known for is like that guy that kind of made science cool and sexy, but not in a Bill Nye kind of way. It was more like, hey, this is the massive impact that science plays. Like genuine curiosity, I think, is what we're going for. Like he promoted a real sense that this is worth looking into further and can be very interesting for everyone. Yeah. And like to that point, the one thing that I've found is like I've been reading one of his books that was published in 1995 or 1996. And the book has been pretty gripping. Like, I read it and I'm like, man, I don't really want to put this thing down. It's it's so well written. It's complex, but not complex. Like, I think the complexity of the ideas and thoughts are distilled in a way that are easy to understand. That's amazing. But beyond that, the thing that I think is most interesting is that if you strip away all of the period elements of his writing, aka like anything that would tie it back to a period in time, yeah, it could be just as relevant today in 2019 as it was in 1995 and it made me realize that humans uh as much as we change nothing's changed (laughs) right everything is the same like we still actually have the same fears we still have the same issues and challenges maybe it manifests itself differently aesthetically and what it looks like but i think the underlying root problems still exist Do you think it's because, so I haven't read this book, but do you think it's because human motivations have remained largely the same? Yeah, I think so. It made me think of this other idea or this other, almost like an essay someone put out and they basically said that humans haven't really changed. Like 
obviously we like to think of our social media era as being one driven by narcissism, selfies, etc. But in that report, what they had was an old school folder camera and people taking selfies of themselves. And we're talking like black and white, like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I totally get it. It's like our tools have changed. We have the internet and we have smartphones, but actually those motivations of vanity and self-interest, those are kind of the same. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's my revelation. Your your stunning recommendation of this book has convinced me that I have to go read it because you actually sent me a picture of the book cover and that I don't know if that's ever happened. Oh, you know what? I have, I have to really give it to Kindle. I think Kindle's new sharing tools are really good. It includes sharing the book covers and being like, I don't know if it does read this book. Everything about it makes me want to share stuff. from. Okay. This is an aside. But I would really like to see the Kindle do some kind of library model. <laughs> because, like, let's say you bought this physical copy of the book, then you could actually give it to me to read after yeah. you were done with it. So, why can't we do that with a digital copy? I'm not saying like piracy, okay? Because I think people should buy books, but something where you could give it to me and it's just the one copy, and then I have it and I'll read it, and then I can pass it on or I can give it back to you. I would pay. A few dollars more to own a version, a Kindle version of a book that I could lend out. Yeah, I think that's great. Or like, let's a not give Amazon any ideas. I mean, they're, well, prob- they're probably would make working on better. it already. They're probably working on it already. Or if you gave a certain amount, like I don't know, seventy-five cents per book that you gave out. Yeah, I would All do right. that. This is just going off the rails because I was talking to my brother. I was talking to Nate, and he was saying that, hey, you know what? There's this concept of uh, spiritual materialism that people need to be aware of. And I feel right now there is also, and I'm probably guilty of it, of intellectual materialism in that- What does that mean? You you basically engage in things of intellectual rigor. Okay. Not necessarily because it's deep-rooted in your own personal interest, because you want to show off that you're doing it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's where the materialism comes into part. And the spiritual materialism could be applied to like yoga, oh, um, all that other stuff. Or meditating or something. Exactly. Exactly. Because the book that um, Nate had put me onto was written by like a monk. I'm going to get this wrong. I'm just going to give you for the sake of understanding, but it's written by a monk and talks about all that stuff around spiritual materialism. Mm. And I'm using it, I'm taking that concept, I'm stealing it, and I'm applying it to intellectual materialism. No, I mean, intellectual materialism totally makes sense. It's like the reason people go watch indie films, like art house indie films, so that you can talk about it, which I also engaged in myself. So, you know, I'm not free from this um, activity. Oh, I like that a lot. Hmm. Anyways, I... Tell you what, let me look more into it and then maybe I'll read the book and then we can talk about it. Cool. Or yeah. you should Anyways, write, you know, you need to write to a book about intellectual materialism. I don't know how I feel about that. When is your book coming out, Eugene? I'm not going to write a book. I don't think I like writing enough to create a book. What if you dictated a book? A book okay. Like, what if you just dictated all of your thoughts and then, besides, writing. Don't, don't you remember that Craig Bond article on books 
writing books doesn't have to be like, I sit down and I write a 300-page novel. If we just compiled all of your editor's letters, all of your make and briefing intros, I bet we would already have like an 100-page book ready-made. I have had someone ask me about that, actually. If I had a consolidated place for all my make and briefing intros. Oh my gosh, there you go. Maybe we could sell it. Maybe we could actually earn some money off of this. <laughs> Maybe. Before we conclude things, short shout out to Adrian W, who sent us an email. And he said that he listens to this podcast. He listens to it every day between classes. It makes me feel so good. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks. thanks. Thanks for the support, Adrian. That's, that's pretty dope. Obviously, we're really bad at accepting compliments, but yeah. Hopefully this is helpful to you. And obviously this one, especially since you're from Hong Kong, maybe there is some sort of interesting insight that you can pull from it. That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about making, reading, and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at makin.com. M-A-E-K-A-N. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.